welcome to Scholars by the Sea, a podcast dedicated to interviewing scholars and authors that help to shape our understanding of the past. My name is Kelsey Sagstetter, and I'm a professor of history at the United States Naval Academy. And here with us today is Dr. Sharika Crawford, also from USNA History Department, to discuss her award-winning book, The Last Turtlemen of the Caribbean, Waterscapes of Labor, Conservation, and Boundary Making. Thank you, Dr. Crawford, for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me here. So your book, it's about turtles. Yes, <laughs> it's about sea turtles. And um, for anyone who has not yet met me, um, they would be surprised that I could actually focus a book on sea turtles. <laughs> and yet um, I came to um, learn quite a bit about sea turtles and, and, and make an argument of their importance to understanding the Caribbean history. Okay, so what should we know about turtles? So first of all, um, there are several types of sea turtles that are still found in the Caribbean and historically were found in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. But my book focuses on two, um, the green sea turtle and the Hawksbill um, sea turtle. Um, perhaps of the two, maybe our listeners um, are likely familiar with the hawksbill turtle, that is because of the tortoiseshell. Um, some of us have seen eyeglasses with tortoiseshell, um, I don't know, you know, mirrors, decorative items, and those particular um, shells were used for a lot of different kinds of, um, you know, jewelry and furniture items. And then the green sea turtle was pretty much used for consumption, and, and almost no one in the United States is likely um, consuming green sea turtles at the moment. So the the first type that you described, the hawksbill, was it? Mm -hmm. It's mainly used for decoration. Why don't we eat that one? That's a great question. Like, why is it not desirable <laughs> enough for Exactly. Us why did people not historically consume those turtles? With the exception of a few places that I can talk about later, um, by and large, it is a um, sea turtle that has a lot of toxins in it, so we wouldn't think it tastes really good. And... Um, you know, it was just more desirable because it was beautiful. It has these beautiful scales of kind of um, brown, black, um, gray um, that just were much more desirable than eating it. However, there are a few little pockets in the Caribbean in which you do find communities that historically have eaten um, hawksbill turtles. So when I when I think of sea turtles, I, I think of endangered species and conservation. Are, are they endangered? Do people still eat turtles today? Yes, there still is consumption of green sea turtles. Um, part of that is, depending on the country, um, mandated by um, national law. Um, they can consume small quantities. However, in the United States, we um, recognize that both the green as well as the hawksbill turtles, um, these are two species which are endangered, um, and therefore we won't see any kind of um, public consumption um, of either of these species, whether they're meat or um, kind of the sale and reproduction of their products, and that's since the 1970s. Okay, so historically, though, these turtles would have been a huge part of the diets of the indigenous people? Absolutely. So, you know, the story of sea turtles um, 
it sort of has like a before history, right? It has the history that I, you know, try to bring out in my book, um, which is sort of um, focusing on the decline. So pre-Columbian indigenous populations um, readily consumed um, a host of sea turtles, sort of like whaling. Um, we think of whaling as sort of kind of, I don't know, like an 18th or 19th century sort of phenomenon, but the indigenous people from the past and even certain um, places around the world, they consume these marine resources. Sea turtles were no different. Um, there's been some wonderful um, archeological and anthropological work studying um, pre-Columbian um, encounters with um, sea turtles, um, whether we're thinking of the Mayan, um, who have depicted them on their pyramids. So some of you know, our listeners, if they've ever traveled to Cancun you know, on vacation, they might have hopped over to Chichen Itza, or maybe they've gone to one of the other you know, um, you know, kind of archeological sites. You can see sea turtles on these beautiful Mayan um, um, pyramids. However, um, there are also places where there's been these these archaeological digs in the Turks and Caicos, for example, where you've seen, um, I mean, upwards of 5,000, you know, pounds of turtle bones, essentially, that have been excavated. So the pre-Columbian indigenous populations um, took advantage of the readily available sea turtles, and that was later introduced to the newcomers, whether they be European explorers or enslaved African populations whom they brought with them. So there was a, a quote in your, your book that I, I really stuck with me, uh, I believe, uh, was something to the effect of when the first Europeans came, the sea was thick with turtles. And so I just have this image in my mind of all of these little turtle heads just sort of meandering about the, the ships. Yeah, it's hard to imagine it today because of the depopulation. Um, we really have seen the decline in sea turtle st you know, stocks. But for Christopher Columbus and his crew, I mean, for them, I mean, this was um, pretty unimaginable that the sea, the Caribbean Sea, was so full of sea turtles that you couldn't make heads or tails of what they were. I mean, their heads were just kind of pouncing out of the water. They're all over the beaches. I mean, they're readily available. And so they're commenting on them all the time. And they're observing how the indigenous peoples whom they encountered are interacting, which ones they choose to eat, which ones that they leave in the sea. And then they learn somehow um, the ways in which they can hunt and process um, sea turtles. So did the turtles have any natural predators other than humans? Oh, yes. There's all kinds of natural <laughs> predators. Anything that's kind of bigger than them is a natural predator. Um, the green turtles, for example, they're primarily vegetarian. So these are, um, you know, not animals that are, for the most part, at least on land, are going to be eating anything that's alive. But you have jaguars and dogs and, you know, just about any kind of large animal that emerges on those beaches um, who could be a threat. And, and typically, um, if they're not targeting the actual adult or adolescent-sized sea turtle, they're going to be targeting their, their nest chambers, where they place their eggs, where they kind of buried deep into the sand on the beaches, which is their chamber, and they're gonna dig those up, and that's gonna make for a fine breakfast for someone. <laughs> so how big are we talking, these green turtles? What, what would their size be? Um, they can run, you know, a small youngin, they would call them, could be about 400 pounds. That's um, a small one. <laughs> that's a small one. Um, a, a youth size one um, in their mature, you know, maybe let's say equivalent to their 20s and 30s, they can get to be about 600 to 800 pounds. And that's equally so for the hawksbill um, uh, sea turtle as well, which means there's a lot of meat.
meat on the green turtle if you're consuming it um, for food. Right. So it sounds like you would never go hungry if that was your <laughs> that was your primary source. If of that is your you know slice of you know good meat. <laughs> So let's go back. You mentioned the influx of Europeans and their interactions with the natives and their observations about how uh, the natives dealt with or interacted with these turtles. Was there a, uh, uh, I understand there to have been a, a major business in exporting turtles. They became a commodity. They became a commodity, yeah, popular in, in Europe. Can you can you tell us a little bit about that? How they got from point A to point B, what yeah, the process was? Absolutely. So um, an argument that has already been laid out before me and one in which I take up and then kind of follow it across the finish line is explaining um, the importance of European discovery um, across the Caribbean, European encounters with um, Caribbean societies, was often linked to their availability or for them finding the availability of sea turtles. So wherever you see early um, European explorers, um, Juan you know, Ponce de Leon and you know, Florida and the, the Dry Tortugas National Park, for example, outside of Key West, if anyone's traveled there, um, all the way to, I don't know, Cartagena or you know, the coast of Nicaragua, places where Europeans were early able to kind of develop sites and communities were often linked to locations where there were sea turtles. And we see this really easily in the transition with the arrival of um, European pirates and corsairs, which is always a fun topic, right? Um, you know, you think of Johnny Depp and some of those uh, pirates films. Every time that you see one of those pirate um, ships, typically they are going to have at least one to maybe four or five often indigenous um, harpooners coming from the eastern Nicaragua um, where they were really skilled at finding these sea turtles. To your point earlier, they're, they're huge, right? They make for good food for large crews. They often are found in places where the water is sort of between shallow and deep and they're often hard to get to, so they're safe havens. From there, you know, that becomes an early um, introduction to the quality of the meat. Some, some mariners who are going back and forth between Europe and the Caribbean believe that it's actually really a healthy kind of meat. And as they introduce that to markets in London, um, you know, to lesser degree Spain, to some degree in the Netherlands and France, um, they are able to kind of build on that. And people want to have this fresh, um, lean meat um, for a variety of dishes from turtle steak to the most popular turtle soup. And, and let's not forget the United States. It was big in Baltimore and Philadelphia, New York, New Orleans, um, throughout Florida, you know, anywhere where they could access, you know, quickly sea turtles. Um, it becomes a commodi commodification. And then for Hawksbill, there's already been a long history of using, from Rome, um, using beautiful tortoise shells. So this is just a new um, location to access um, that source of um, jewelry and, and decorative items. So you say that, that people preferred their turtle steaks or whatever fresh. So that means that the people who were exporting these turtles would keep them alive 
en route on the journey? Yes. So um, it turns out that sea turtles um, not only um, roam across the globe quite easily, they're easy to travel with. And they're often, you know, on the top, you know, you know, decks um, often tied. Their, their fins are tied. You know, they're kind of flipped over, making it difficult for them to move and thus, you know, try to get away. They often fight and struggle. Um, but essentially um, what would happen is one of two things. Um, Oftentimes, you would move directly to the location where you captured the the particular you know turtle. You might then stop in Jamaica at a port where you might keep them fenced in into a kind of um, shallow ocean fence while you're you know I don't know I'm stocking your warehouse you know to go on to the next location. And eventually, when you know you have the technology and the ships can travel much you know lengthier distances, um, they're keeping them alive without even having to store them in water pens at all. And so they literally arrive, you know, to the port. Um, a newspaper will announce their arrival, like you know, we just got a 900-pound green turtle on Friday at this location, right? Be ready for you know turtle soup. We're gonna dress it up for you, and you know you know, affluent, you know, diners really could afford to take part in this exotic, foreign, you know, delicious food. Um, we take for granted how common, you know, for us today, we're eating bananas all the time, but, you know, most of our bananas are not actually, like, grown in the U.S. This is sort of a new entryway into food consumption in, in food markets. So when they're transporting these turtles uh, across the, the sea to, to Europe or wherever, are they feeding them? That's a great question. No, um, actually, for the most part, they're just dousing them with some water, you know, making sure that they don't stay too dry. Um, they can actually live for a very long time without eating. And ima I mean, imagine their size, right? So essentially their size is allowing them to stay alive because that extra fat on them, right, is able to kind of be used for energy and they're not really moving that much on those ships. So they managed to stay alive um, across these very lengthy um, voyages, um, with the exception of any type of transport that makes a midway stop and they're kept for a period of time in water pens. So given the size of these things, how many turtles would usually be in each shipment? It varies across time. So the, the time period in my book, you know, which is looking at the declines, I'm looking at, you know, the mid to late 1800s until the latter part of the 1900s. Um, let's say uh, a voyage starting in Georgetown, Grand Cayman, uh, traveling to the Caribbean waters outside of the eastern Nicaragua might pick up three to 500 um, turtles. It will take several months. Um, depending on who their buyer is, most likely an American buyer, though depending on the time period, it starts out with British buyers and increasingly becomes American buyers, um, which changes the dynamic in terms of um, the voyage length, whether they're going directly to England or going straight to the U.S. Um, this can be done re really in about you know three to four months. Um, the more um, available the sea turtles are, the readily available they are, the quicker they'll kind of do these back and forth trips. And as we get into the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, as we see a really um, noticeable decline, it takes them longer and longer time to hunt these sea turtles. Let's talk about the uh, the Cayman Islands. So, if I understand correctly, this uh, this phenomenon of turtle hunting was really the uh, backbone of the economy. 
I know. I mean, um, you know, other than doing my research in the Cayman Islands, I've, I had never been there before. But I would imagine the average person thinks of the Cayman Islands as a beautiful place to vacation, right? Beaches, maybe, I don't know, the financial industry, the banking industry where you, you know, wealthy people might, you know, hide their money. Secret accounts, yes. Secret <laughs> accounts, right? But up until like the 1950s, the primary economy is sea turtles. It is this industry. This is how they are earning their living. These are maritime peoples. And that's one of the kind of interventions that I make in my scholarship. So much of the history of the Caribbean is really understood through the lens of agriculture, particularly plantation slavery, the arrival of the import of African slaves, and how it impacts the social life, the economy of that region, and rightfully so. It's very important to understand the rise of sugar or all the way to bananas. But not all the islands in the Caribbean had the same kind of agricultural base um, political economy, and the Cayman Islands was one of those exceptions. It was formated, or formulated and, and sort of surrounded purely on um, the sea, first wrecking, right, you know, the occasional ship that just, you know, has a problem and, you know, they have to run out and salvage it, um, to eventually um, being able to make money off of distributing um, sea turtles. So the turtles became hunted almost to, to extinction, correct? And, and how did that affect the, uh, you know, everyday life of somebody who had previously, for generations even, depended on that? Yeah, this is, this is I think, what drew me to the story is, is the people. The sea turtles are there, but I, I'm really interested in the people who hunt sea turtles. And one of the things that you see... Um, very quickly um, in the beginning of the of the 1900s is the um, the looking the searching for alternatives not necessarily for the island's entire economy but you see men um, taking work elsewhere some of them will become merchant mariners no surprise there um, others will emigrate for jobs um, whether we're talking about in Florida or Texas some of them go to work in the canal zone um, in Panama or they work in the oil fields of Venezuela so you do see um, basically a, a necessary kind of push to look for an alternative you know, form of livelihood. But surprisingly, there is a, a sizable number of um, veteran turtle men who stay in this industry um, really across the early part of the 1900s until the late 1960s and 70s. And so shockingly, you know, you still have people hunting turtles like in the 1960s they're mechanizing their ships right you know putting motors on them they're trying to get phones you know they're trying to kind of update as they recognize the the fact in front of them that there, there's just not as many sea turtles for them to to capture the way you describe it sounds like almost a diaspora caused by the extinction or the dearth of sea turtles it's a, it's a great way to think of it with the exception that this diaspora um often is coming back. They're, they're temporary migrants, so they, they do come back, and of course they provide remittances for a period of time. Let's talk about uh, demographics. So when we're thinking about the Caymans in uh, the, the pre-Columbian period and even today, what are we looking at? Was, was the, were the Caymans, was it heavily Anglo? What was the the demographics of it and the history of it. So I can't speak too much to the pre-Columbian period, but what I will say about European um, settlement of the islands, um, that happens in the 1600s. It is not um, kind of the 
the first uh, kind of round of settlement places. It's not like, oh, we have to go to the Caymans first. It's sort of kind of a, a second or maybe even a tertiary um, period of settlement. Which and is funny given its reputation as a resort it, today. Exactly, which some people might enjoy living there now. Who knows? There's hurricanes there, though. Um, um, the, er, the early uh, settlers are coming from Bermuda, um, Bermuda, which was early uh, uh, English settlement. Um, the Bermudians become like these like long distance um, mariners. They're like traveling all over the Caribbean. They're very resourceful. And some of them decide that there's some good mahogany on these islands and we would like to fell these, <laughs> these trees. <laughs> and so some of the early people who come are, are Bermudians and this kind of other English settlers who are not quite like fitting into the patterns of maybe settling in a place like Jamaica. And then they of course will introduce the importation of African slaves who initially are helping to cut this this lumber, you know, like essentially cut these trees down. Um, it, like most commodities, they have a, a rise, you know, and there's a fall, right, a boom and a bust cycle. Um, so mahogany doesn't stay um, very long. And then they turn to cotton. Um, they need more slaves for cotton, Sea Island cotton production. But again, it's like they miss their turn with the agriculture and that bust and you know cycle happens really quickly and so they just kind of do what they can they're you know to make a living so this is an English um, island um, the Spanish would claim it of course over the early part of the 16 and 1700s it's claimed but they never colonize it they never send settlers there and it's pretty much heavily um, English-speaking peoples um, pretty much from the 17th century till today. So how does that affect the story in the early 19th century? Wouldn't that have been about the time that the island was ridding itself of the Spanish or um, controlled by the Spanish? Yeah, so in the latter part of the uh, 18th century, um, through a series of wars, these Anglo-Spanish wars, eventually the Spanish um, give up their claims, both to Jamaica and the Cayman Islands. Um, but what is interesting in terms of that larger story is that the Cayman Islands um, become a part of the um, emancipation story. The British emancipate slaves in the 1830s, um, while smaller or fewer in number than they are perhaps in neighboring larger Jamaica. Um, what we find is a lot of these formerly enslaved peoples um, looking for access to land, like most enslaved people, once they're free, they just kind of want to have a quiet place to live and not be bothered, um, will find um, that the Cayman Islands is not the only opportunity for them, and they will actually migrate. They will migrate um, to places closer to Central America. So some of us are familiar with the Bay Islands um, off the coast of Honduras. Um, they're going to create their own little settlements there. They're going to find themselves in places like Nicaragua, um, little tiny islands in the Western Caribbean. And so there's a little migration story prior to the fall of the turtle industry that happens um, as a result of emancipation. And that's quite common um, component of the story of emancipation in the Caribbean. Well, you mentioned Nicaragua, and that's uh, another thing I wanted to talk about, the relationship with the groups of indigenous people, the Mosquito, am I saying that right? Correct. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the Mosquito are a really fascinating group of indigenous people. So during the time, as we were talking about the Spanish, when they are coming into the Americas, they are, you know, bringing down the Aztec and the Inca, 
the Mosquito managed to stay autonomous for much of the colonial period. They are very, um, they're coastal people in the Eastern Caribbean. So if you looked at a map today, they would be located at the border with Honduras um, to the north of that coast, all the way to the southern coast of Costa Rica. They were a conquering people. They would go further south and do raids to indigenous populations in Costa Rica and Panama. And they're very savvy in interacting with the Europeans, particularly the British and the Dutch who they learn their languages. And therefore, they view their closeness with British and Dutch um, newcomers as an opportunity to buttress Spanish claims and attempts to conquer them. So they're kind of this in-between people, and they also happen to be um, upwards until the 19th century, pretty much the best turtle hunters in the Caribbean. They just use a long harpoon that they can kind of stand on their narrow canoes and they can kind of identify um, through the bubbling and the blowing of the sea turtles in the water where they're located and they can do with pretty good precision um, have a you know a striker or a harpoonist you know throw that in there launch it in there and they have plenty of meat to um, enjoy for their own um, traditional festivals. I don't think I'd want to go hunting a 700-pound turtle in a canoe. That doesn't in sound... A narrow, in a narrow commu- yeah, canoe. That does not that. sound safe to me. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a complicated story, but it's, it's compelling. You've got these, these turtle fishermen uh, who are sitting out there minding their own business, and the mosquito, you talk about how expansionist they are. Uh, they just decide to incorporate them and become like a major part of their society? So I think what I try to demonstrate in the book is that the mosquito in their encounters with these newcomers, whether the original Europeans who are arriving to the Caribbean or the enslaved Africans who joined them, people like Alada Equiano, some of us are familiar with his account of slavery in the time period, he ends up there. They are sharing by the nature of their encounters how they are um, hunting sea turtles, how they're eating them, what they use them for, and these various newcomers bring these ideas back with them. And they also adapt them, not to suggest the Caymanians who are going to, I think, take the title of being like the world's champion um, turtle hunters. Um, They actually don't use harpoons. They're going to use um, nets um, to trap sea turtles. But they did learn quite a bit. There's an encounter, there's an engagement there. There's a kind of cross-cultural encounter of maritime activities. But I think more importantly, what the book um, tries to showcase is that this is a part of the history that we don't actually hear about. It's so fixated on land and kind of understanding kind of terrestrial struggles, whether they're on the, you know, you're in the island, right, looking from the island outward to the mainland, or if you're, you know, standing in the mainland, looking out at the sea, these are the people who have been ignored, and they're actually quite important fundamentally to how the rising um, mature nation states in Latin America are going to make claims that these are their territories and we get to protect them and we're not really happy with you foreign uh, interloping um, you know turtle men from the Cayman Islands coming in and taking our resources so the mosquito are kind of an early um, iteration, a pathway for us to understand the the variety of engagements that happens um, in that region. Well, I think you're right, and this is certainly not something that I remember learning about in any, you know, high school social studies class or history class, Um, but it's 
interesting as the you know turtles become scarcer, the islanders start going farther afield. We get into uh, the modern era where people start thinking about conservation, the environment, and one of the the ways in which, if I understand correctly, this became on people's radar was when a photographer traveled on one of these these turtle ships. Yeah, there's there's actually a, a, a couple of um, ways in which we can think about it. So there is um, a wonderful um, 1940s photographic journal essay that was published in the National Geographic um, Society by a man who will become a very well-known war um, photojournalist, um, both in the first, or sorry, the Second World War, and then subsequently in the Korean and the Vietnam War. And he basically like invites himself to kind of hang out with these like captains of these turtle hunting, you know, you know, schooners and sloops. And he is able to introduce to an American audience, particularly by both the um, written account, but also the photographs, like the hard work and the dignity of these laborers. I mean, essentially, these are, you know, these are laborers. They're not making a lot of money. This is not, um, ironically, a big industry for the actual crew members. And yet, um, it's a fundamental part of their kind of understanding of themselves and, and the society that they live in. And um, it's through you know, an account like this that we are introduced to um, a very well-known turtle sea or sea turtle conservationist by the name of Archie Carr. I was going to ask you about him next. <laughs> so Archie Carr is an American, was an American um, from the South. He's going to be um, a professor at the University of Florida. Um, herbatologist, meaning he studies reptiles and sea turtles are part of the reptilian family. Um, Early on, he has an opportunity to work in Central America, and then eventually he gets invited to Costa Rica from a, by a former student, and he really is interested in understanding a fundamental question. What happens to sea turtles once they are born and they go into the sea? They travel for a very long period of time. and until This is that period where we don't know much about what yes. happens to them that yes. you mentioned at the beginning. Absolutely. We don't know, like, what are they doing all this time? They're circumventing the globe. And so Archie Carr um, manages to um, introduce a project in Costa Rica in a community that is known for, in fact, it's called Tortuguero, Tortuguero, which is in Spanish, is like turtle bogue. So the name of it suggests there's a lot of sea turtles. And what he wants to do is two things. He wants to track the, the migration patterns of the sea turtles. And as he collects the data, he recognizes clearly that there is a catastrophic um, decline in sea turtle populations. And he works really hard to create a conservation um, program to, um, you know, basically um, uh, farm raise, if you will, or kind of like in the wild, um, sea turtles and then replant them throughout the Caribbean. And in doing so, he meets with um, veteran, sometimes retired Caymanian um, captains of these sea turtle voyages who have a lot of knowledge about the movements. Um, you know, the behaviors of sea turtles that scientists sometimes ignore, right? Like, what would they know? They're, you know, it's not a scientific right, it's, experiment. They're not, yeah, they're just fishermen. Yeah, we don't Turtle take men. them seriously. And Archie Carr, right, he's just kind of this folksy kind of scientist. He's a people's per person as well. He travels throughout the Caribbean, and that's what he does. He's actually taking into account um, their knowledge, and it's helping him to actually develop a conservation um, program. And they're buying you know, into it because, of course, 
they want to save the sea turtles because that's their livelihood, right? We still have some of those sea turtle um, veterans who are still, fit, you know, hunting those turtles into the 60s. And so you have this um, ironic um, sort of uh, collaboration um, between um, members um, of a group who are helping to participate in the decline of sea turtles um, and then someone who's advocately, you know, advocately um, trying to save them. What time period are you talking about? When was Carr active doing this? 1950s is when he begins in, in Costa Rica, and he continues into his life until the 1990s. And there's an Archie Carr Center for Sea Turtle Research, um, obviously at the University of Florida. So his research um, continues on with his graduate students and their students now. Now, the 1950s is not an era that I associate with a lot of environmental activism. So was he, I mean, was he a true pioneer in this sense were there you know what he is but he's um and it's it's interesting you say that he he is and it is becoming the rise of environmentalism but you know who kind of takes all the thunder rachel you know uh, carson right um the you know she is um she lived and grew up in maryland and she's kind of the face of environmentalism um she writes these That's beautiful the silent spring yes. author of the silent spring yes right? and her first book is the sea around us so she actually writes this early book about the sea around us. And she just, you know, captures, I think, the imagination um, of the American public at a time in which um, maybe because Carr centers so much of his research maybe in Latin America that it doesn't quite capture in the 50s. But he eventually becomes known in, in the 1970s and 80s as the voice for um, conservation activities um, surrounding sea turtles. Now, you mentioned uh, his efforts to, to farm these turtles and to sort of redistribute them, um, but there, there was an interesting moment in his crusade where, if I understand correctly, someone suggested farming the turtles for consumption, and he was dead set against that. Can you talk a little yeah. more about that? So initially, Archie Carr, you know, he sort of had this dilemma. On the one hand, he recognized that sea turtles and the consumption of them has been a part of Caribbean life for quite some time. In fact, in certain places, this is part of their basic dietary needs, like they're getting their animal protein from sea turtles. And they don't have an alternative because they live in communities that are um, impoverished. Um, there's not a lot of development. And he couldn't imagine that they can just shift from that to being able to afford beef or, or chicken. So he wants to preserve initially their ability to still eat sea turtles while at the same time trying to increase the numbers of sea turtles being born. But by the 1960s you know, and 70s, and by the way, Archie Carr, when he's doing this research in the 50s and 60s as he's traveling, he's eating sea turtles, right? If they cook it, He's eating it. He's not saying no to that. And there's some pushback by other, um, you know, conservationists about um, Carr's, you know, inability to be really, you know, hardcore and not consume sea turtles. And that sort of changes um, basically in the 1970s when he recognizes that the the, the conditions, the numbers of sea turtles are so deplorable that he cannot even advocate for the continual, even local use of use, you know, consuming sea turtles. And so he, you know, shifts gears. And um, of course, this is an industry. Pe people have made money. You know, people are thinking about how can you can you know, sea turtles. And they also recognize that for the Caymanians, um, who have not shifted fully to tourism, even by the 1950s and 60s, they're just budding tourist sites, um, there might be an opportunity to still salvage that industry. And so um, a group of foreigners, um, you know, open up a, a, a kind of a, basically a sea turtle farm, um, essentially, and, and they think they're going to market it for overseas. And 
Carr, as you mentioned, um, he and, and some other um, well-known conservationists, they are adamant and they become kind of a public debate, not just outrage over um, any type of consumption of, of sea turtles. But, but he developed that position over time. That wasn't the way he viewed it initially. But people still eat turtles today in the, the Caymans, correct? Um, yes, <laughs> yes. Um, you you can you can get a turtle a burger, for example. Turtle and, burger. <laughs> I don't know what it tastes like. I'm going to be honest. You with haven't you. you haven't tried one. I've never tried a turtle. I've had two opportunities to do so. Um, just that's just not my thing. <laughs> but but um, you can um, take part in it. And I, I if I understand correctly, in the Cayman Islands, um, they have a Cayman Islands um, sort of uh, farm and educational center, and they are the ones who are kind of um, farm raising this the turtle that can be consumed. And it's very you know relatively low you know low numbers of people, and it's very it's kind of pricey actually. I mean, I don't know how many tourists are. So these turtles, if you that. order yourself a turtle burger when you're visiting the you Caymans, can. it's going to be farm raised. It's not going to be wild hunted caught. on one of these canoes or no. caught in a net or anything. Okay. No. However, in a place like Costa Rica, you can. Um, at least you um, had been. Maybe I have to check the laws of recently in right 2022, but you had been able to consume local consumption, right? You can't consume enough that you're going to sell it at a local market or, you know, for export. But, you know, if you found one and, you know, you want to make it for your dinner and your breakfast the next day, you had the right to, to do so. However, um, what we're finding is that um, there still is an illicit market in sea turtles, both for um, food, but also for um, their eggs. You know, the, the, <laughs> the eggs even of the hawksbill are considered delicacies. They might be sexually um, potent for men who consume them for a variety of reasons. Used in aphrodisiacs? As an aphrodisiac, wow. right? So that's okay, a market. That's not, it's a new one to me. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, and, and that happens to be the same route that we're actually seeing um, the travel of narcotics, um, traditional narcotics coming from South America. So they're kind of going hand in hand at times. So at what point did the export of turtles, uh, you know, for consumption non-locally become outlawed? So that's the middle of the 1970s, and this really has to do with Archie Carr's um, really tremendous um, ability to work um, internationally, both in the region um, with various countries, some representatives who could help, particularly places like Nicaragua or other islands um, that have sea turtles, to work with them to kind of put in bans and laws to protect and preserve the sea turtle population. And then he's working, obviously, with um, people in North America and Europe who are trying to create, essentially, these larger endangered species lists. And he becomes um, finally successful in doing so by, by 1975 when the U.S. signs on and includes sea turtles. And, and that's the primary market, right? So if Americans are no longer able to import this, you don't have a business anymore, right? So um, it's, it's a long thought you know, battle that he is able to see one in that respect. There's a, a moment that you described when this ban was enacted. One of the last turtle ships was uh, out to sea when this law was passed and they didn't get the memo, so they showed up at Key West and were unable to sell their turtles. You know, you have to kind of imagine that there's multiple perspectives, right? There's the perspective of the, of the sea turtles, right? That they have a chance, of maybe a fighting chance to to survive um, and not be a part of, a, of this kind of luxury niche industry. But then just think about these kind of, you know, really working class, you know, laborers, right, who are trying to make a living. This is something that's been 
generationally passed them as you know an employment and they show up and like I'm sorry <laughs> like we don't have any well, there's there's you know it's closed you know like you did not get the memo that this is over and and of course they 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 understood they knew that this was at play but maybe they thought they can just get in one last you know shipment. one last turtle shipment so what happened to those turtles in that fateful you know, you know what you know I would imagine they were they were just released right they were not kept and they might have been some type of um, scientific conservation effort but they wouldn't have been sold and they were being primarily sold by a cannery in in Key West at the time well we do have a a bit of a a happy ending so despite the lack of uh turtles and the 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 decline in the turtle population the caimans uh did find a way to become economically viable primarily now with, with tourism and as you said before banking uh, and you can even uh, you can even eat turtles there if you wanted to get yourself a turtle burger <laughs> it's always an option when you're there next <laughs> was there anything else that you'd like our listeners to to know about this industry and the history of this this period I just I think that for you know our listeners just to be reminded that um, so much of the Caribbean um, and the transformations that happened there um, have not fully been understood through the sea uh, which seems ironic because, I mean, it's the Caribbean. Island. Yeah. Like, these are <laughs> islands, right? Like, wouldn't you be talking about, like, maritime? With the exception of, you know, nice stories about pirates, right? Those are always kind of catchy, you know, tales. Um, there's still much for us to uncover. Um, and I think it's really important thinking about environmental change, um, thinking about how um, nation states attempt to Um, protect their resources. Um, We're talking about a few hundred people over the course of the 18 to 1900s, and they are part of a larger story um, that helps to um, preserve um, what is a finite resource. Once sea turtles, you know, and their species disappear, we will never be able to recover them again. And so hopefully this is just one um, part of a, of a larger project of a lot of other scholars helping us to understand um, the maritime experience in the Caribbean. Well, thank you very much, and uh, congratulations on your book. This has been Scholars by the Sea, and we have been talking with Dr. Sharika Crawford about her book, The Last Turtleman of the Caribbean, Waterscapes of Labor, Conservation, and Boundary Making. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.